I once heard someone who had been living for God or claiming to be living for God for, I believe, more than 30 years say, I don't know why your church talks so much about covenant when I can't think of any scripture, at least not in the New Testament, that talks about covenant. What do you think of that statement? There you go. <laughs> what is the New Testament? New Covenant. What is the New Testament? When they say New Testament, they're just saying New Covenant. That's what New Testament means. It's the New Covenant. Amen? There's one particular scripture that really emphasizes it, and it's a crucial scripture because it's really when the New Covenant was initiated. And we want to get to that in just a second. But before we do, what is a covenant? It's an agreement or parties. It's a mutual agreement. A covenant entails both parties agreeing to certain terms for a certain purpose that they have chosen. Amen? They both have obligations, they both have limitations. So can you think of any covenants today that we might enter into? Maybe secular covenants? The military. He just said the military. That's, that's a fact. Anybody else think of any covenants? Is covenant particularly a religious term? Is it exclusively a religious term? Absolutely not. It's a contract. Okay? Every time you sign a contract with the bank. You're making a covenant with the bank. Has anybody ever heard of the term land covenants? You ever heard of that? Okay, well, I'll give you an example. We just signed a contract on a piece of land and they said they, they, they agreed to the terms and then they amended the terms and really made Brother Gabe crestfallen because they said well, you can't do any commercial pig farming on the land. <laughs> if, Brother, if Brother Gabe agrees to those terms then he has agreed to a land covenant does that make sense is he obliged to agree to those terms no but he can't get the land if he doesn't there's something that this man in, in authority to this man in power this man with means this man with land has that Gabe wants and he has to receive what he's seeking on the terms of the benefactor, on the terms of the one in the position of means. Does that make sense? What else did he say we couldn't do on that land? No mobile home parks. <laughs> so no, I wonder if he draws an equation between the two. No commercial pig farming and no mobile home parks. Well, anyway, if we say, if we agree to those terms and go ahead and sign our, our, our name to that contract, we have entered into covenant with this man. The land is ours. It will be ours. No, it won't. But <laughs> the land will be whoever buys it. It will be their property. Whoever signs that contract in agreement with him, it will be their property, right? But they still, there are still stipulations to that contract. So that's what a covenant is. It's agreeing to specific terms. Now, 
In the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant was initiated by a very specific rite of passage, by a very specific ritual, you might say. What was that ritual? Circumcision. Paul tells us repeatedly that that was what defined the Old Covenant. And that did begin with Abraham. Amen? Now, the Bible says something pretty serious about circumcision. It says, whoever is not has no part or inheritance in the Old Covenant and God's contract with his people. God made a contract and he said, I want to make you my own. I want to be your provider. I want to be your protector. I want to bring my blessings into your life. I want to set you free from the vices and sins that would ruin your families and ruin your lives, ruin your culture. And so in order to do that, I want you to agree to these terms. And the covenant, the first step into the covenant was circumcision. But then God spelled out the terms in more detail in the law of Moses, didn't he? And he went into great detail to say, you can't do this and you can't do that. It wasn't just no pig farms or mobile home parks. It was pretty delineated, wasn't it? And if the people breached the covenant, if they broke the covenant, then God is not obliged to offer his services in the agreement. Because fidelity has been breached until, and until it is restored, until that breach is covered over, until that breach is, until the wall is mended, he is not going to give his blessings, his promises into that broken container. So it was like, it was the parameters. Covenant is the parameters. It's the container in which vulnerability is possible. Paul said that the law, the old covenant, was the pedagogos that brought him to Christ. Translated the schoolmaster that brought him to Christ. Greek word is pedagogos there, from which we get words like pedagogical. Amen? Referring to schoolmaster. And it actually can mean not just schoolmaster, but it has connotations of containment, like a corral. The Old Covenant defined the parameters of what God is not. It was the law. Jesus said, I came to abolish the law. Is that right? What did he say? I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now what is the difference between abolish and fulfill? To abolish something would be to get rid of it. To fulfill something would be to do what? To fill it full. To fulfill. So Jesus came and he said, you've got a great form of godliness, but you have no power thereof. You have a great cistern, but it has no water. You have a cloud, but it has no rain. You have an order, but it has no life. You have a letter, but it has no spirit. You have a body, but it has no breath. You have an army, 
but it's lying dead on the ground. And he came to fill those forms with a living power. He came to fill it full. When Jesus came on the scene, those who claimed to be believers, those who claimed to be obeying God, they were constrained by the perimeters, by the perimeter fencing of what God was not. There's barbed wire fence here, okay? And out beyond this fence is the world. It's the world's way of living. It's the world's way at relationships. It's the world's idols and it's the world's manna and wealth. It's all of this that is not God. Do you understand? And then I'm, I'm, th there's this fence keeping the world out. But if I'm looking at the world, then my back is to God. And all of the desire of my heart is evil, as Genesis 6 says. And as Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. And the entire heart of humanity is towards sin. Okay? So I'm reaching through this barbed wire fence. Reaching for the things of the world. Wanting the things of the world. Trying to pull as much to the fence as I can possibly get. And all that's keeping me are these external strands of barbed wire that say, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and thou shalt not. Do you understand? But my heart and my desire is not toward God, who is in the, in the center of the garden, walking in the cool of the day. Rather, my heart and my desire is toward sin. And the law is merely an external. When Jesus came, he did not come and clip that barbed wire fence and say, okay, go right off the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're free to go to the world. That is not what Jesus did. That would be to abolish the law. In fact, what he did was he came into the midst of the garden. He stood at the tree of life. It all began with a tree and it all ended with a tree. And he called to his people, enthralled by the world, caught on the barbed wire fence of their own desires. And he said, turn around, people. Which, what, did, what was the word he used for turn around? <laughs> Repent. For the kingdom of God is right at hand. You don't have to be pursuing the world anymore. You don't have to be lusting after the world or the things of the world. Because something is here that's never been here. A power has come on earth. Hope and peace, goodwill toward men. He, God is here in the flesh to dispense toward, in mankind's lap a power and a fulfillment that you have never known. So he says, repent because for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is something more wonderful, more powerful, more real, more attainable, more fulfilling right in the midst of the garden. Amen. Right here at the tree of life. So Jesus' new covenant was a covenant 
of revealing the essence. It was a covenant of fulfillment. Amen? It was a covenant of taking the abstract and making it flesh and blood. No man had seen God at any time, but now the only begotten Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath revealed Him. John 1.18. Amen? We have seen Him. We have heard Him. Our hands have touched Him. We have beheld. Amen? He made it real. He fulfilled the longing that was being misplaced in pursuing the things of the world. Amen. This covenant that Jesus came to establish did not take wire cutters to the old law, but it said that is no longer what's going to define your relationship with God. From now on, your back is going to be toward that law. But your face and your desire and every, the way you live your life is going to be in pursuit of the God who is in the midst of the garden. So you say, oh, so is the law still in effect? Absolutely. Absolutely. What is he saying, Galatians 4? Look at this. Ask me first. Did you hear that? Brother Ossie just said we're under law. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I said the law is still in effect. Whether you're under law or not is your choice. Listen to this in verse 1 of, of Galatians 5. For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. We wouldn't want that. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. He's not speaking of the moral law. He's speaking of that plus the ceremonial law. Amen? You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. You're like, yes, I'm glad you wanted to read this. This is what we think. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Listen. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you and made you obey the truth? Did I get that right? That last verse right? Is that what he said? No, he said you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul is not angry with them because they're trying to obey the truth. Paul is angry with them because they're returning to the fence and thinking that staying within the barbed wire is now sufficient instead of actually pursuing the hope through the spirit that is in the midst of the garden. Do you understand? Nobody is going to be justified by that fence anymore. The perimeter of what God is not, that's no longer good enough. And if you're going to choose that route, then you're just, 
You're, you're living a double standard unless you accept the whole thing. That's what he's saying. Listen. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul is rebuking them for their lack of obedience. Verse 8. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Paul is saying, I'm not trying to get people to live inside the law anymore. That's not what this is about. And if we're trying to live according to that, those externals, it's a joke. It's silliness. When the, when the reality has come, why go back to the externals? Why go back to the do's and don'ts? Why go back to the ceremonial law? Listen to what he says. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted then? The stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Poor Paul, he wasn't a very sweet person. Verse 13, he, had, he wouldn't fit in some of our churches, I know. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Listen, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 16, listen, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He's angry with these people because they're not obeying the truth and they're returning to legalism and externalism. But in doing so, they're allowing the desires, they're fulfilling the desires of the flesh on the other side of the fence. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. They are irreconcilably opposed. Irreconcilably opposed. There's a tongue twister. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He says, obey the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust, the desires, the ple what pleases the flesh. You know, in choosing the Spirit, you may not do what you please. Now look at this, verse 18. If you haven't heard anything I've said, you have to hear this. But you are led by the Spirit, and you are not under law. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. I open this passage to tell you that the law is still in effect, and to ask you whether you were still under the law. And this is the whole point right here, verse 18. He does not say that. Here's what he says. He says, but if. Big I-F, big questionable, conditional if. 
Okay? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are not led by the Spirit, you most certainly are under the law. Do you understand? And the law is powerless to make anyone righteous. So if that's where you are, you're hopeless. But you're still going to be judged by it. Because the law is way out there. We're supposed to be far more like Jesus than the law could ever make us. We're supposed to have left that fence a long time ago when we turned our back on the world on the other side of that fence and looked back toward the voice of God in the midst of the garden. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I settle your heart now, even if you do these things, you're going to heaven. Is that what he says? No, he's speaking to the church, saved by the grace of God, and he says, all these things I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who climb through the fence and find these things, or those who reach through the fence and find these things, or those who pride themselves that the fence is still in front of them, but they're still getting these things, they're not going to see heaven. They're not going to see the kingdom of God. I forewarn you, the Apostle Paul says, if you're doing these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is, if you found the new covenant, if you found Jesus, if you found the tree of life and the voice of God in the midst of the garden, here's what the fruit will be in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. But against everything else, you better believe there's a law. Amen. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, that is to say, if our salvation, if our spiritual life and hope is in the Spirit, then we better walk by the Spirit. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Do you see how the love is a greater requirement, not a lesser requirement? In Matthew chapter 5, isn't it, that Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. I want to ask you, was he making our obligations toward righteousness easier or harder? We know he was tearing down certain aspects of the external law. But he was, by internalizing it, he was making it 
much, much harder. Amen. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman with lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery. And in that same thought, this is what Jesus said. The God whom we credit with abolishing all obligations toward obedience, here's what he said. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. He did not say you don't have to be righteous. He said look amongst you and find those whom you think are too righteous. The scribes and Pharisees. Elsewhere he said do as they say but not as they do. For they sit in the chair of Moses. But here he says unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You will by no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus came to abolish were all the do's and don'ts that we could do and don't on our own strength. And what he came to establish are all the standards of love and godliness that we cannot achieve in ourselves. The Pharisees were self-righteous because they took pride in do's and don'ts that were well within their power to fulfill. But to control the heart of a man, to love one's enemy and not just one's neighbor, this no one can do in themselves. It requires a relationship with God. It requires a power of the Spirit. It requires that the love of God be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And for that kind of righteousness, human flesh can take no credit. It is not a work of man. It is the abasement and the death of man and the glorification of God. It is to say, I do nothing of my own initiative, but as I hear, I do. And that is the righteousness of Christ, the only kind of righteousness that avails anything. Jesus did not come to say, I know the Pharisees made it real hard. Here, let me lower the standard to within your reach. He came and he said, I'm going to raise the standard right up out of your reach. It used to be here and now it's way up there and you can't achieve it. And you stand beneath it saying, who then, Lord, can be saved? And he turns around and he says, with man, it is impossible. What he was telling us in that statement is this. In this new salvation and covenant, God had devised a plan that was impossible with man and that required an ongoing relationship with the God of heaven. No longer could we take him under our control and take pride in our external do's and don'ts. No, his requirements were so outside of our reach that we would spend our life reaching into heaven saying, God, give me the grace to do what my flesh is so powerless to achieve. Amen? Let's worship God right now. Hallelujah.
to get it. He didn't say this results in eternal life. He said this is it. Here we are. This is it. This is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Have you ever met Jesus? How do you know him? Through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. Okay? So, what does that look like? Saying, Lord, Lord, you taught in our streets. You healed in our streets. You were in our homes. You ate and drank with us. Those, did those people think they knew him? But proximity to him was not knowing him, was it? But there's another passage that talks about knowing him, isn't there? When Jesus says, I was in your streets. When Jesus says, I was in your prisons. When Jesus says, I was hungry, thirsty, naked, sick. And you came to me. What did they say? Lord, when, when did we do these things for you? What they're really saying is, when were we knowing you? And yet that knowing him equaled their salvation, did it not? And what did he say? When you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. There's only one way we're going to know Jesus on earth. There's only one way we're going to know the only true God and Jesus Christ to me is sent. And let me be blunt about it. We are going to have an encounter with his invisible, numinous spirit that forever defines for us who he is, what he sounds like, what he feels like, what it's like to be in his presence. Amen? That defining experience that will reoccur throughout our life will help us to recognize him in all of the fleshly manifestations of our brothers and sisters when we meet him unawares. We will not know him unless we know our brothers and sisters. Because he said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives one who sent me. So to receive our brothers is to receive Jesus Christ and the one whom he has sent. Amen. To receive Jesus Christ and the only true God. The one who sent him. Are you with me still? Really? Okay, now this is... Fundamental. This is not peripheral. James said that even in his day, there was a little coterie of people who thought they were loving God while remaining distant 
from their brothers and sisters. Do you remember what he said? He said, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen? What he was trying to tell us is the only bit of God you may ever see in the flesh is going to be his spirit, a very tiny portion of his spirit shining through the fallen, failing vessel of your brother and sister. And if you can't learn to love that, you will never love God or your claim to love God is false. New covenant. When did Jesus initiate the new covenant? The last supper. What did he do? Matthew 26, 28, right? Everything he does on this last night with his, his disciples, he tells them to do in his absence. He is setting a new precedent. One that he wants them to walk in in perpetuity. So toward the end of the evening... Something dramatic happens. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. How many are familiar with the term, the body of Christ? Oh, there's one or two. That's good to hear. Everybody's familiar with the term, the body of Christ. But right here is when the concept first asserts itself in the way in which we think of it. He is saying to them that that bread was not his flesh. He's not pretending that this is the, the tissue and blood and yeah. No. He's saying that the fellowship of eating together and having fellowship with one another that somehow that is the body of Christ. Amen? To break the bread. Yes, symbolically, it's the bread. But in a real sense, what's the body? It's their lives that are being broken and shared. It's their hearts that are being given to one another and eaten and received. And Do you understand? The word companion means one who breaks bread with you. So John picked up this exact same terminology when he says, how can we say we have koinonia with Him, with God, and yet walk in darkness? What does koinonia mean? Fellowship. And it even means like when they share a meal. How can we say we have dinner with one another and we have this ongoing rapport with God when we walk in darkness? But he says, if we have fellowship or companionship or breaking of bread with one another, then the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is cleansing us. Now that's very significant because right there is the new covenant. That's where it's happening. He took the bread, broke, and he said, take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not just the putting off, not just the animal sacrifices postponing the payment for the sins as in the old covenant, but the actual remission 
the removal, the expungement, amen, of the sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. John said, when you have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus is cleansing you. Do you see how those two come together? To add to it, Paul said, the bread which we... Do you want to read it to us? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak against the wife. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? It's the common unity of Christ's blood. It's the sharing of the gift. Go ahead. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, so many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying we are that bread and we partake of that bread. It's what I was saying before. It's not about whether you're eating that combination of, of ground, wheat, berries, water, oil, and whatever else. It's the fellowship. Is the body of Christ real in your life to the extent that it is the covenant is real in your life? To the extent that you have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, is cleansing you from all sin. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. But to the extent that you are trying merely to separate yourself and remember what Jesus did up here in your mind and say, I love that God whom I cannot see, but I don't have fellowship with my brothers whom I can see, to that extent... You're a fraud and you're deceiving yourself. And you're going to get to the end of day and you're going to say, Lord, when did I see you? When did I hear you? When did I sit next to you in church? I never noticed. And he's going to say, yes, you should have read the Apostle Paul when he rebuked you and said, you are not discerning the Lord's body. I want to ask you a question. Is it possible to be in love with the head of Christ and not the body of Christ? I just so love your head. I don't, I don't, no, I don't want to give you a hug. I just, it's just your head. No, I don't want to shake your hand. It's just your head. You don't love parts. You love the person. And Jesus so identifies with his church that he says, that's my body. If you don't love them, you don't love me. If you don't receive them, you don't receive me. If you don't have fellowship with them, you don't have fellowship with me. He did not come to give us some mental concept some illusion in our heads. He came to pour out his anointing spirit and establish a community, a fellowship, where people could actually help each other, actually love each other, actually break bread with each other, actually forgive each other's sins and move and grow and reach toward perfection together. 
You cannot commit to Christ and not also be committing to his body. That's a very scary thought, is it not? The only way that could happen is if you see Christ as a decapitated Christ. He called his church his body. Now, we know that the body of Christ is not concentrated in one fellowship. It's universal. But much of what claims to be the body of Christ is simply not the body of Christ because it is simply the form without the power. It is the rituals without the essence. It is the do's and don'ts. But it doesn't have the love. It doesn't have the fellowship of the Spirit. God has called you to be part of that body. In 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's verse 8 or 9, Paul says, we being many are one body in Christ. But then in verse 8 or 9, he says, God has placed the members of the body exactly according to his will. If you would be saved by your union with Christ, then you've got to recognize that God has a place where he has chosen to fit you in. He has a fellowship. He has relationships. God has placed, and that word is ordained. God has precisely placed the members of his body exactly according to his will. That means I don't choose where I'm joined to the body, to this universal body of Christ. If I am a pinky finger, can I just decide, you know what? I think it's going to be the church of my choice. Bink! And attach myself to the forehead, you know? Yeah, this, this works really great. No, the finger, the pinky finger only fits one place. The place where God chooses. Do you understand? And we don't like that. But it's the truth. If you are a member of Christ's body, God has a place where you belong. He has a fellowship where he intends you to remain. And you have to have a sufficient relationship with God that you can hear him giving you that kind of direction, saying it's here or over there, or it's this one or that one. But when he leads you, you let him determine the boundaries of your habitation and the exact places of your dwelling. Acts 17 says, in the chance that you might seek for him, grope for him, and find him, though he was right near you all along. When do we enter this covenant, this new covenant? The old covenant was entered by what? What right? Circumcision. I want you to go with me to Colossians 2.11, and I'm almost done. Let's start in verse 9. Verse 9 says, In Jesus all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. I feel sorry for the Father and the Son every time I read that. Verse 10, and in him we have been made complete. What's that word? It's perfect. 
Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what do we know about this circumcision of the new covenant? It's not like the old because it's not made with human hands. Can we all agree on that? So we can agree it is not a work of the flesh. Whatever else it is, don't you dare call it human works. And so don't you dare exclude it from salvation. You want to exclude everything that's human works from salvation? I agree. But he says that whatever this is, this circumcision is made without hands. In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he wants us to get the point. Don't you dare ever, 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 ever call true baptism a work of the flesh. Don't you say salvation's over here, but baptism's something else altogether because it's a human work and we're not saved by works. Because he just debunked that two times in a row. He says it's made without human hands and then he says God is the one who makes it. We're saved by grace. This is the gift of God. Amen? So, I told you a little bit ago that salvation is a relationship with God. And now I'm telling you that baptism is salvation. How do these two go together? Do you, do you, are you, do you really think I'm just saying that if we can get everybody baptized in here, they're all going to make it to heaven? Hmm? You think that's what we're doing? We can just fill the room with water. Amen. Let's get everybody baptized because baptism is salvation. I mean, you know, get them to do this, do that, do that, and they're going to be saved. No, they're not. But to the extent that it correlates to the relationship that saves you in a significant way, to that extent, it does have everything to do with salvation. Mark 16, verse 17, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. 1 Peter 3, 21 Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So I can just either forget all those scriptures or I can figure out some way that they work. Here's how they work. Your relationship with God is what saves you. Baptism is what keeps you in that relationship that saves you. It's your pledge. It's when you stand at the altar and you say, I do. But God doesn't just want you to say, I do. He wants you to say, I do. And then he wants you to do it with your whole body, going underwater. I do bury this old man symbolically under these waters forever. Relationship with God is what saves you. Baptism is what binds you to that relationship. Your love is what your marriage is all about. But your vow, your wedding, is what keeps you in that love. Do you see how if I went and made a vow to, get to, to, to be married to my wife and I just said I do and then I left her and never talked to her again, never lived with her, never shared anything with her, would I be married? So in and of itself, that wedding is not going to give us a marriage, is it? 
and in and of itself, your baptism's not going to give you a salvation, is it? But if I truly am in love, and it is my heart's desire, and I am no longer living according to the law, but the Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in my heart, that is my salvation, and I cannot keep that salvation if I don't seal it in a covenant, in a covenantal vow. When I pledge my life and I say, God, I agree to these terms, namely that I'm keeping this man and his will dead and I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life, so help me, God. That's salvation. Just like marriage. You get married and legalism says do the bare minimum. Love says do whatever increases that feeling, that love, that, that bond, that unity. Let me show you what a legalistic marriage looks like. Do you? Do, 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 do. I do. You do too? Good. Okay. You may embrace the bride. What? Me? No. <laughs> uh, honey, shall we, uh, shall we go on our honeymoon? What? what? Why would I have to do that? I'm married to you. Do I really have to go with you? Honey, shall we go get something to eat? Do I have to eat with you? I don't even know if I want to be seen in public with you. I mean, we are legally married, right? Okay, good. All right, so I don't have to do that. Legalism is minimalism. It tells you what is the least you have to do. Love is devotion. It tells you the most you have to do. Honey, um, uh, I was hoping that we could uh, get a house together. Live in the same house with you? But we're married. We don't have to do that. That's how people live for God. And then when you obey God, they think that that's legalism. To, to be devoted to God and want to serve Him and do whatever pleases Him. To, to give more and love more and share more with God. To call that legalism is insanity. It's love. It's devotion. Legalism is the bare minimum. Well, I surrendered my life to God. I don't know why I'd have to do that. I've been baptized. I, I, I think it's all settled. Hey, don't talk to me about how I talk or how I do business or how I do this or that. I'm, 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 I'm safe. I'm settled. I'm living for God. Do you see how legalism is our, is our way of getting out of devotion and true obedience to the demands of love? And do you see how true love brings forth devotion and obedience to what that love engenders in our heart? Hmm? Do we see that? Baptism is when it happens. Baptism is the pledge of a good conscience. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and he said, repent, that is, die to yourself, your autonomous reign, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, bury and vow that old man under the waters of judgment and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He used the exact same terminology when he says, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Jesus says the blood of the covenant is for the remission of sins. Peter says, Be baptized for the remission of sins. How do these two come together? We enter the fellowship. We enter the commonwealth of Israel. We become partakers of the covenants of promise. When we surrender... We lose our old name, our old identity, everything we were, our autonomy, our self-reign at baptism. And we say, Jesus, you're my Lord. 
And if we actually walk in him as Lord, if we actually walk like we're married and like we're in love, well, then that's what saves us. Amen. The relationship saves us and the baptism is the wedding vow that keeps us married. But if we just use baptism as a legalism to get by with, to do the minimum that we have to do and then go on and live for ourselves, it just becomes a facade, doesn't it? A farce. It's a marriage of convenience. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? Amen. So, when you're baptized, are you making a covenant with Jesus or his body? You can't separate Jesus from his body. So I'm, I'm a minister in this church, and I've baptized a lot of people. So let me ask you this. When you're baptized, are you making a covenant to me? No, you're not. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not making a covenant to this person or that person because this person or that person may fail. But you're making a covenant to God to discern his body, and this is what he's shown you is his body at this time. And you're saying, God... This is where you've joined me, the little finger. This is where I belong. I have discerned my brothers and sisters, and I see your spirit in this place. Now, if they all failed you and decided to, to backslide, I would still remain faithful to you. So ultimately, my covenant is simply to Jesus. Do you understand? But right now, my covenant is to Jesus, and I perceive Jesus in this context. And so it is to these people, to the extent that they are surrendered and serving God according to the truth that God has absolutely convicted me is from him. So the covenant that you make at baptism is not to any person or people, but it is to the body of Christ. And you should only get baptized if the Lord has shown you the place where you belong and where his body is no longer abstract, but it's become very relational. And you know those who labor among you. And you're saying, God, I discern you in this relationship. I discern you in that relationship. I discern that I am part of a city compacted together. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, the prophet told of the new covenant, the new covenant people, and he referred to the church as Zion. And he says, of Zion, all your sons will marry you. That's to say all of Zion's sons will marry the church. You're going to be bound to the church. But a person, an individual in that church can fail. And your covenant to Christ and his body remains steadfast. Do you understand? I can fail. So your covenant is not ultimately to me. But to the extent that I am surrendered to my place and staying as I ought in the body of Christ, then we are in covenant with one another, aren't we? It's a little complicated. But I'm trying to make it simple. So does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So am I in covenant with Brother Gabe? Yes, I sure am. Because he is still staying true to his vow. He may make mistakes. He may slip up. But he's staying true to his vow, his pledge of a good conscience. Jesus is still his Lord. And we're still in this together. Okay? But now, would it be fair for me to say that I made my baptismal vow to you? No. And in fact, Brother Gabe is going to die someday and be with the Lord. I may do that first. He may do that first. And my covenant is not broken. I'm not freed like someone who's just bound in a marriage and a spouse dies and they can go their way. 
So ultimately, I made a vow to Jesus. But Jesus is still alive in his people. And he still showed me that these are the relationships where I belong. Amen. He has chosen the exact place where each member belongs. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. Amen. The church is full of people that are so independent, they have no relationship with God. And whenever the going gets tough, they just get up and walk away. And we are trying to find the true church and live lives of commitment to each other that don't have the same bad results. Amen? So we're not doing it like the Baptists do it. And we're not doing it like the Pentecostals do it. We're trying to hear from God. And if God shows me that this is where I'm supposed to be baptized, this is where I intend to live the rest of my life. Oh, I may move across the country. God may send me out of the country. I don't know. But my vow is to God's people and the light he's shown in this context. Do you understand? Because this is where God is shining from. Amen. This is where he's clothed me and fed me and gave me something to drink. And this is where I've clothed him and fed him and given him something to drink. This is where Jesus and I have broken bread. This is where we've had fellowship. This is where the blood of Christ is cleansing me from all sin. You need to find where you belong and stick it out. Through thick and thin, through highs and lows, through tough times and great times, find where you belong and stick it out. Because that's the only chance we have to make it all the way to the end. Hallelujah. Let's worship God. Thank you, Jesus.